you guys go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to ask you to listen fast tonight because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Romans chapter 1, we're going to look this evening at verses 19 through 23. Um, last week we talked about the wrath of God and we saw that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And we talked about those elements and talked about God's wrath in detail. But we know this, that when we talk about God's wrath, it's not going to take very long before someone says, well, that just doesn't seem what? Fair. That doesn't seem right. What if, what if they didn't know about him? What, what, if they, what, what if they never heard about him? That just doesn't seem right. We're going tonight to talk about some verses that are going to take away all the excuses that evil man might think that they have. And what it's going to do as we look at this, it's going to establish the fact, as, as you see on this board, that God's wrath is justified, that he is right in everything that he does, including his wrath. And he's gracious in instructing us as to why. He didn't have to tell us here in verses 19 through 23 why he's justified in his wrath, because he's God. But I'm thankful that he is gracious enough to go ahead and explain to us why his wrath is justified and why we as sinful men, I'm talking about those who are not redeemed in Christ, uh, as we all once were, why we as sin sinful men, if we were to face the wrath of God apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because we know this, that's the only thing that frees us from the wrath of God. So if we were to face the wrath of God, we could never face the wrath of God in ignorance, because he has and he is continuing Two, by just the things around us. And that's what we're going to see. His creation and the things that you see with your human eyes, uh, he has been revealing himself to man so that we will see tonight they're without excuse. So we're going to see this, that when men are left to their sinfulness, I mean, you're thankful that you weren't left to your sinfulness, that you were rescued by the gospel that we've been talking about. And when we get to this text, we're going to see very quickly um, why Paul, uh, for the first part of Romans, was, was very adamant about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, about a righteousness from God and all the things that we've talked about up until this point. Because without the gospel, we are all headed down that slippery slope, that constant downgrade, not just us as individuals, but as you see all around you right now, probably as never before in the history of the world. You think about that. We have been downgrading since the fall of man. And we have been escalating in that downward spiral of sin since then. We're going to see tonight that that has not changed for the sinner. They are still in that spiral of drifting farther and farther and farther away. And we're going to see that that's progressive in the life of a sinner, just as it was in your life until God graciously rescued you through the blood of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 19 through 23. We'll read it, and of course we'll come back verse by verse and we'll talk about these things. We're going to see, as you have on your outline tonight, God has revealed himself. That God's wrath is justified because God has revealed himself, because God has removed man's excuses, because man has rebelled against God, and because man has rejected truth due to his prideful arrogance. And then lastly, we'll discuss um, that God's wrath is justified because man has uh, 
replaced God. We're going to see that is inevitably the digression of sinful man. They will ultimately completely replace him. We'll talk about that when we get there. Let's look at 19. We saw last week that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But 19 says, since that, uh, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men, please underline this, are without excuse. Verse 21 says, for although they knew God, now when they, it says here that they knew God, it is talking about a simple basic knowledge. It's not talking about an intimate knowledge that you who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ now have. It's talking about a basic intellectual knowledge. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. 22 says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So that you understand that, and we'll talk about it more, he's talking about idols. They eventually turn themselves completely over to idols. Now, this has been the progression of man. This is what sinful man does throughout history. Everyone who does not trust in God by faith and faith alone will ultimately continue in this downgrade until it leads to idolatry. Therefore, these things that we're going to see in this passage are the reason that God is justified in his wrath. And that first thing that we saw there in 19 and 20 is that God has revealed himself. 19 in the first part of 20, it says, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Uh, God has not hidden himself from man. Please don't think that for one second. It says that since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. You can look around you and you can see God has made it plain. You can walk out on a starry night and you can look up in the air and you can see that God has made things plain because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. Been clearly seen. So we see this. That God has revealed himself to man in a general revelation. How many of you know there's a difference between general revelation and then when God truly reveals himself to you in Christ in the sense of a salvation revelation where you receive true saving faith. There is a difference. And what we're going to see tonight is that before that can ever happen, before God can ever offer to you um, redemption, before he can ever offer his salvation to you, he will offer to you and show to you and has revealed to all of mankind who he is in general. We see if we keep reading there in 20, it says, having been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So we see this, that there is that general revelation of God. 
we read that passage there or those verses there, and it says his invisible qualities. His invisible qualities would be things like his omnipresence. How many of you realize this? He's present. Many people, even before they are born again, they experience the omnipresence of God. We, we can tell story after story after story where God's invisible quality of his omnipresence was shown to people. Unfortunately, what a lot of people say is this. Well, I was in a tragic car accident, and in that tragic car accident, um, I felt God's presence. And so I'm saved. If you're here today, let me tell you this. You're not saved because God revealed the unseen quality of his omnipresence to you. He is letting you know that so that when you do hear the gospel, when he does call you out of darkness and into light, you, you don't doubt whether he's real or not. It's already been revealed to you. Unfortunately, we've all heard those stories. I've asked people, tell me when you were born again. Well, I was, I was in this tragic thing, and all of a sudden I felt the presence of God. That's great. I felt the presence of God in my life, his unseen quality of omnipresence in my life long before I was ever born again too. But unless you've been born again, let me say this to each of you, friends, you're not truly born again. That means this, when God draws you out of darkness, out of darkness into his marvelous light, when he does that through his Holy Spirit, offering you by the faith that he gives you salvation in Jesus Christ, then you are truly born again. Up until that point, you've just had a general revelation of God that he gives to all man, according to what we just read here in Romans. So we see his invisible qualities, the fact that he is omnipresent. It goes on to say his eternal power. This is his eternal omnipotence. When we talk about God and the doctrine of God, we talk about his omnipotence, meaning that he is all-powerful. I don't know about you, but when I've been to places like the Rocky Mountains, seen the grandness of his creation. Some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. I've not been there. I've seen pictures. Um, I've actually been over into the Holy Land and seen places that the Bible speaks of. And in seeing those things, that God created, I stand in awe of his omnipotence, the fact that he is eternally omnipotent, that he is all-powerful. How many of you have children? Huh? Remember when you held your kid for the first time? God reveals himself in that, that I am all-powerful to give life, death. I am in control of all things. I never understood the love of God the Father completely until I had a son of my own. And I remember making eye contact with that little baby in the hospital and thinking, man, this is what it means for the Heavenly Father to love his children. Uh, because immediately it was a blessing. Now, where did that blessing come from? I knew this, that blessing came from God. Every person who's ever had that experience to hold in their hand that creature that God had created through the miracle of birth. Every person who has that opportunity to hold that baby in their hand has seen the power of God. So we see his power in his creation through his omnipotence, the, the things that he spoke into existence. And that's what blows me away when I stand on top of a mountain, whether I'm hiking or whether I'm just driving past and get out of my car and look at all the things God has created. I think of this. And he spoke them into existence. By his word, he made this happen. 
Uh, that's why science is astounded. They, they, they can't figure out how in just six days all this was created. So they have to come up with some other theory that makes it billions of years old so that they can feel good about it. Here's the thing. The amazing thing to me is this, that an omnipotent, all-powerful, eternal God spoke things into existence in six days that scientists think are billions of years old. That's how powerful he is. And so as we look at this, we see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, the omnipotence of God. And he says his divine nature, his divine nature. That's this, the characteristics of his omniscience, meaning this, he knows everything. Uh, he always has, he always will. There is nothing that takes him uh, by storm, nothing that catches him in a moment of just shock and surprise. He already knows. I, I tell people this all the time, and they look at me kind of crazy. Everything happens by his cause or his permission. So please understand that. He is in control of everything. He is all-knowing. He is sovereign. He is divine. And in his divinity, we see his immutability. Malachi says this. It says, I, the Lord your God, do not change. And so in looking at God's characteristics and the things that we see around us, we can pick up on all these things. His omniscience, you don't think God was all-knowing? Then why did he create water that you have to have? And why did he place a sun in the sky that has to warm you so that you don't freeze to death? And why did he place the earth perfectly on its, its axis that if it were to move closer to the sun, we would burn up, and that if we were to move farther away from the sun, we would freeze up. He's perfect, and he's all-knowing. Why did he speak the law of gravity into existence? Well, that was so that one day when we're walking along, we didn't all just fall off into space and drift forever and ever and ever. And so understand, everything in creation that we see is completely orchestrated by an all-knowing God. How about the seasons? How about the rains? How about the droughts? How about all the things that take place that he knows need to take place in order to fulfill his mighty sovereign plan? And so what he's saying is God has revealed himself through these things, his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. We've seen it all in the things that he has created, his glorious creation. We see this, that he is the creator and the sustainer of life. If you are still alive at this very moment, please understand, it's because the creator and the sustainer has made it so. Your heart is still beating right now because he said that it should be. And when he is finished with you on this earth, let me just uh, break the news to all of you, the heart will cease. And so for the believer, we will spend eternity in the presence of God, but unfortunately, for the unbeliever whose heart ceases to beat, who every day woke up and took it for granted that his heart was beating because a sovereign God created him that way for his glory. He took that for granted and he didn't recognize that. That unbeliever is going to perish apart from the goodness of God and he will endure the wrath of God that we spoke about last week. And God is justified in that because he has revealed himself to man. So we see in Psalm 139... One of my favorite psalms, flip over there if you have your Bibles. We're going to read the whole thing. We see many of those characteristics that we just mentioned here. 
Psalm 139, verse 1. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Why, he's omniscient, isn't he? He knows everything. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before, and you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You can't, because not only is he omniscient, he's omnipresent. The psalmist is realizing this. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will, be not, will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. We see his power there. There is nothing that is going to come against him, not even darkness. In the darkness, he will light the darkness completely. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. The psalmist understood as he looked at himself as one of God's creation that he was fearfully and wonderfully made by the hand of God. He said, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place and when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So how many of them were ordained? Every single one of them. He knows the day you were born, and he has preordained that, and he also has preordained the day that you will expire from this earth. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as, as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist there gives us a wonderful discourse on the power of God that had been revealed to him. He understood God's omnipotence. He understood God's omnipresence. He understood the fact that God was omniscient and that he was creator of all. Now, every man has that revealed to them at some point in some time in many points in many times throughout the course of their life. It is the general revelation of God through creation. So we see as we continue to read, we see in the second part of verse 20 here, he says this, because I have revealed myself, right? God is justified in his wrath because he has revealed himself. And he said, in revealing myself, I'm justified in my wrath because I've removed all of your excuses. You have no excuse. He says, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. There are no more excuses for sinful men. There will never be a valid excuse. You can't stand before God one day in judgment and say, I never knew you were real. Why? Because he just told us in 19 in the first part of 20, 
that he is revealing himself and has been revealing himself to mankind through his creation, through his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So that we get to verse 20, the second part, they are without excuse. So God's wrath is justified because God has removed man's excuses. Man cannot claim ignorance. Uh, You can't say, I just didn't know. Uh, Throughout history, I promise you this, throughout the scriptures, God has repeatedly made himself known. And let me tell you this, even more so in the coming of Christ and since the New Testament, he has made himself known. Because in Christ coming to this earth, it was beyond just his creation. God came to this earth in person as Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Now think about what that means. You are without excuse in the first things that we talked about in the fact that in basic creation he has revealed himself, but he revealed himself even greater than that in the person of Jesus Christ. In case you didn't know it, even the lost world knows something was special about Jesus because they started measuring time differently after him. We're going to see that we have drifted away from that ideology that Christ was important, and we're going to see why in just a moment. But man is without excuse. God has revealed himself through all of those things that he said in verses 19 and verse 19 in the first part of 20, where he said his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, his glorious creation. And we know this in the fact that Jesus Christ, the God man, came to this earth and died as a sacrifice for sinners. Did you know this? It is a historical fact. Whether you personally know Jesus Christ or not, historians of his day verify that he was here and that he led a group of devout believers. You can read articles from Josephus that will confirm this. I've got the books in my office. If you want to go down there when we're done, we'll read them together. I love to read them. We'll read them again. And Josephus gives an account historically that Jesus, the Christ, as we know him, came to this earth and had devout followers who we know this history also says were willing to live and to die for him. So man can't claim ignorance. Please understand that. Sinful man, when you were in your sin, you couldn't claim ignorance, could you? No, you really couldn't. Did you know the atheist can't claim ignorance? The atheist has to make an active choice to deny God. It's not that the atheist doesn't believe in God. It's that the atheist makes an active choice to deny the obvious. It's all around him. And so we see we can't claim ignorance, and man can't justify their unbelief as they try to do so often. Why is that? Why does man try to do that? Psalm 14, verse 1 says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to forget where I came from. I remember when I was a fool, when I was a sinner, right? And here's the thing, if I would have continued down that path, I probably would have escalated to the point of total denial, right? Because it's easier for me to deny God so that I can hold on to my sinful lifestyle. It would have been easy to just say, you know what, I I learned something in a science class that told me I don't really have to believe in God, and if there's no God, then there's no reason for me to live any other way than just to indulge in my sin. 
Unfortunately, we're going to see as we cover this study tonight, that's exactly what sinful man does. They begin to indulge in their sin, and they spiral out of complete control. And next week, we're going to see this. Not only do they spiral out of complete control, God is eventually, because of that, going to really execute his wrath and reveal his wrath upon them, even in this life. But God has removed our excuses. Man has no viable reason at all for their rejection their rejection of God, because based on the obvious things around them, they should at least believe in a creator and believe in something bigger than them that has made the things that they see. The men in this room, their families, the fact that right now I decided to close my left eye and now I decided to close my right eye, and something allows that to happen that's so much bigger than just Kirk Hall that I was fearfully and wonderfully made according to the plan of God. So man is without excuse. God has removed every single excuse that they could ever make. And so therefore man makes an active choice. Please understand this. Man makes an active choice to deny God's revelation so that God cannot be blamed. That's for all the people who want to blame God for the people who he sends to hell. You can't blame God. Why? Because God took away all of their excuses and in their will. This is for all the people who want free will. You free willers listening? For all the people who want free will. What man does with their free will is what we're going to see tonight. They, number one, deny an obvious God. The next thing that they do, they indulge in their sinful nature. And then before you know it, in their free will, they are spiraling out of control. If you remember way back in the garden, the first man, his name was Adam. And he had free will. And you know what he did? Every tree and plant in paradise was his for the taking, but one. And you know what? That's the one he thought he had to have. Why? Here's the thing. He had a sin nature. And in that, just as you do, and just as I do, in that, our sin nature wants to deny the things of God so that we can have the things that we want. We're going to see that in our culture really tonight, probably like some of you have never seen it before. So we see God has removed man's excuses. And then we see this. God's wrath is justified because God has revealed himself. He's made himself known. He hasn't hidden himself. And God has removed man's excuses so that man is what? Without excuse. And then we see man does something. Man has rebelled against God. So we see God reveals himself. He takes away every excuse that man could have. And then man still rebels against God. Now let me tell you this, before you were redeemed, that's who you were. You remember those days? You remember those days, be honest. And you rebelled against God because that was your very nature in your sin to rebel against God. And so man has rebelled against God. Why would God not be justified in his wrath? Verse 21, it says, for although they knew God, and he's calling us out, isn't he? For although they knew God, They had a basic understanding of the things that were revealed to them. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking 
became futile. Anybody here ever been futile in your thinking when you were a sinner? Of course you were. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So man has in their sin rebelled against God. He says this, that they've rebelled in many ways. Number one, by rejecting God's glory. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God. They didn't glorify Him as God. What does that mean? They withheld the praise that was due to Him. How many of you, when God generally revealed Himself in your life, when you were a child or when you were a teenager growing up, how many of you actually did praise Him even though you were lost? I did. I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't know what it was all about. But I'll remember this. I remember long before I was ever born again, I was driving down the road. We were in a family reunion. It was back when kids rode in a pickup truck. And uh, remember that? We we didn't wear seatbelts, and we rode in the back. And we all made it. Well, most of us. So we're driving down the road in the back of that pickup truck, and I'm going down this country road. You remember how country roads were before they just started cutting all the timber? And there was actually trees in between you know, the the highway and the other woods on the other side of the road. So it was almost as if the trees made a canopy over the road. And I'm in the back of that truck, and I'm looking up at the sky. And uh, my my older cousin's driving the truck, and I'm just watching the clouds, and I'm watching the trees, and I'm seeing the, the beauty of all of God's creation. I looked over at my cousin, and I said this to him. Man, do you believe in God? Because how can a person not believe in God? Now, let me tell you this. Nobody ever told me believe in God because of the trees and believe in God because of the sky. How can a person not believe in God? Now, I'm going to tell you this. I wasn't saved in that moment. That was general revelation. I saw the beauty of God's creation. Here's the thing. Many of you probably experienced something like that before you were truly born again. And God used that in your life to continually reveal himself to you until he revealed himself to you as Savior through Jesus Christ. And that's the process of how things generally work. But man has in them this distinct desire to rebel even though they know God is real. James said, you believe in God? Well, that's good. Even the demons believe and tremble. And so belief in God, for all of you people who are caught up in that, thinking that belief in God equals salvation, it doesn't. Belief in God equals this. You have acknowledged general revelation of God. Now, In acknowledging general revelation, it doesn't fix your rebellion, does it? I would love to tell you after I had my drive down the road in the back of the truck moment that I never rebelled against God again. No, it didn't change a thing. It's exactly what he says here. For although they knew God, I knew he existed. I didn't glorify him, right? I didn't glorify him with my life. I didn't glorify him through praising him and living for him. So I withheld from him. All those years until I was truly born again, I withheld for him the praise and honor and glory that was due to him. I failed to submit to his sovereign power and to his authority. I just noticed that he had generally revealed to me his hand in creation. Now, listen to me. People who you talk to about Christ and their answer to you is when you ask them, do you know Christ? And they say, I believe in God. What does that tell you? What Houston, we have a problem. Right? That means this. They have received general revelation, but they have not received saving faith. Please know that. Telltale sign. When someone, when you ask someone about 
surrendering to Jesus Christ and you preach the gospel to them and their answer is, I believe in God, you got a problem. Because belief in God is normal, right? He's revealed himself to man. We see that. He's going to do it. But although they knew him, they continued to rebel. That's why he's justified in his wrath. They rejected his glory. It says that they refused to acknowledge and to thank God for his common grace in their life. That's what he's talking about here when he says this. He says that for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Gave thanks to him for what? Did you know this? The lost man receives common grace from God. That's how amazing our God is. When you were lost, you received common grace. You know what common grace is? You breathed air. You had a life. You had a family. Any of you have these things before you were born again? That wasn't the saving grace of God. That was the common grace of God. Sunrises, sunsets, His basic goodness towards man. Did you know God shows basic goodness even toward evil men? Because His Son shines on the just and the unjust. And so understand something. His common grace is given to all of men, even sinful men. That's not saving grace. Please understand that. Don't settle for common grace or you'll settle for it all the way to hell. But their life, their happiness, their friends. How about your provision? Right, Every time you put a morsel of food in your mouth, that's God's common grace that he shows all of mankind. So as we see that, he says that they knew that, but they didn't thank him for it. They knew what he had done, but they were not thankful for it. Now, since we're all being honest here tonight, I remember when I was lost and unthankful for common grace. But when he saves you by that effectual grace, common grace becomes oh so much more, doesn't it? You see that he loved you in spite of you and that he was good to you even when you were bad toward him and when you had rebelled toward him. So these sinful men, unredeemed humans, refuse to acknowledge and thank God for His common grace in their lives. They went on about their business, not giving Him glory and not being thankful. Just using Him and taking all the things that He had freely given them that they don't deserve. And then they followed their corrupt minds. They followed their corrupt minds. This is depravity. Until you are born again, you have a depraved mind. It is totally sick and totally depraved, and that is the only option you have, is to sin and to invent new ways in your depraved, darkened mind to do sin. So as we see this about mankind, unredeemed man, as we all once were, they followed their corrupt minds into every evil scheme they could come up with. Proverbs 14 says, There's a way that seems right unto a man, what? 14, 12. It, but in the end, it leads to death. How many of you, before you were born again, man, you thought you were doing everything right? You're living the American dream all the way to hell. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about unredeemed men. And we can relate to that because we all once were unredeemed men. He's saying you were just living your life unappreciative to God, not giving Him glory, not recognizing His common grace and being thankful for that common grace, following the corruption of your mind. You did whatever your corrupt, depraved mind thought that it ought to do. It led you down a path of sin every single time. It felt good, so the lost man did it, right? 
Isn't that what we see around us in the unredeemed world that is before our eyes every single day? If it feels good, man, do it. Who cares about the consequences? Remember when you were there before you were rescued from your depravity? Are you thankful for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness that we have in Christ? I told you it was no accident that Paul spent so much time at the beginning of Romans talking about the glorious gospel so that we would realize when we get to this part, man, this is what the gospel has freed us from. It ought to motivate us to go out and tell the good news to those who have not been freed from this in their lives up until this point. So we see this, that not only did they follow their corrupt minds, but they continued in the deceitfulness of their heart. The deceitfulness of the heart, isn't that a nice little neat slogan that you get to see in America today that makes me want to vomit every time that I see it? Just follow your heart. Can I help all of you? If you would have continued to follow your heart, you would have followed your heart all the way to the pits of hell. So understand that. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things. Jeremiah 17, 9. Write it down. Memorize it. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now we know this. When it says beyond cure, meaning this, we can't cure this ourselves. But how many of you would say that my heart was cured in Christ? The deception was removed, and I saw the light for the first time and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But until then, I was led by the deceitfulness of my heart. I hate it when I hear people say to a young man, a young woman, maybe they're starting off in college, maybe they're starting off in their career, and they say something like this. Listen, Christian men, don't say this to people. Just follow your heart. (laughs) Please, don't. Following your heart will lead you away from God, not to God. Just follow the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He'll carry you wherever He wants you to go. But don't dare instruct people to follow their deceitful heart. Because you know what's scary about a deceitful heart? It makes you think you're going down the right path when you're going down the wrong path. You can be traveling down that broad road and your heart keeps telling you, Oh no, you're on the narrow road. You're still good. Everything's going to be all right Because it is deceitful. So please understand that when we talk about our heart, he says that these sinful men continued in that deceitfulness of their hearts. And when you continue in that, we're going to see it's just going to do nothing but escalate. I'm thankful today that God did not allow me to continue in the deceitfulness of my wicked heart, that he rescued me from that, placed his Holy Spirit inside of me, and gave me a brand new heart, replaced that heart of stone with that heart of flesh that he could now lead and guide like he could not before because of my wickedness. And so we look at these men continuing in the deceitfulness of their heart. John chapter 3 in the Gospel of John, he says this to us there. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. What is it? Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness. He was talking about the darkness of their heart. Men love darkness. Even though light has come into the world, men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were what? Evil. Wretched, sinful, depraved man. You know what he loves? Evil deeds. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And so when we talk about our deceitful, dark, wicked heart, we have to understand that it will if not set free and destroyed through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the finished work of Calvary, that heart will lead us into further sin 
further downward spiral, and eventually lead us into judgment for all eternity. So we see that God's wrath is justified because his wrath, because he has revealed himself, excuse me, because he has removed man's excuses. He's justified because man has rebelled against God. So no one can get mad at God. We've all agreed with this up until this point, haven't we? When you were in your sin and in yourself, God revealed himself many times to you, and you didn't even want to acknowledge it. You didn't want to come into the light because you liked darkness. It took him coming to change you by his sovereign hand, or you wouldn't like dark, wouldn't like light now and would still be in the darkness. We can all agree that every excuse that I could come up with, he took it away. He took it away. He kept taking that excuse away and taking that excuse away and taking that excuse away until I found out that I was without excuse. And in doing that, I saw my need for him like I've never seen that need before. That is his general revelation to us. And then we see that we rebelled against God, not giving him glory, not recognizing and being thankful for his common grace. Every day we got up, we did our thing, we went about our business. We thought, man, everything I have, I worked hard for it. Not right, it didn't come from God. It was something you did. You accomplished it. You forget that. The only reason that you could accomplish it is because he allowed you to do it. So you received his common grace, and then you abused it and didn't even thank him and praise him for it. You followed the corruption of your mind further and further into sin, and then you continued to follow that deceitful, darkened heart. And I'll say this to each of you here tonight. Had he not rescued you from that, you'd be in a heap of trouble. Let's read on, because the next step in this progression and downward spiral is this. God's wrath is justified because man has rejected truth due to his prideful arrogance. Look at verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This person, this sinful man, rejects God's obvious, absolute, and revealed truth. It's there right before their very eyes. A lot of people want to get upset, and they're like, well, well how, how could God send people to hell? That doesn't seem like the God I know. How could he not send people to hell? After he reveals to them over and over and over again his goodness, his creation, his power, his invisible attributes, and his qualities, and then they willfully continue to spit in his face in their rebellion, rejecting his truth that has been revealed to them. So they do this. How do they reject his truth? What does that really mean? Let's look at that in detail. They apply human wisdom and human reasoning. Right? It's all these people who like to think God away. Right? They're smarter than God. You ever met that guy? He knows more than God. Right? He knows so much about God that he knows that there can't be a God because he's smarter than everything else in all of the universe. And so without knowing it, he sets himself up as his own God. We're going to see that's going to definitely lead to his demise. But they reject obvious, absolute, and revealed truth by applying their human wisdom and their human reasoning. And not only that, by using their human feelings and emotions. We are in a society that is driven by their humanistic feelings and emotions. We live in a time in Christianity, unfortunately, where people are driven by their feelings 
and their emotions. Please, men of God, listen to me. Don't be driven by your feelings and your emotions. Now, we all have them. Okay, Even the toughest guy in here who plays like he doesn't, you have them. Sometimes those things are good, but most times if left unchecked, those things are bad. There are doctrines and movements that are based solely on feelings to move you away from the truth. So please understand when I tell you this, if you're not educated to that, please educate yourself when I tell you that there are whole so-called Christian movements that are not based on the Word of God. They are based on feelings and emotions and is Satan's deceitful tool and continually leading men away from the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word, the truth about God, the truth about Christ that has been revealed unto us. And so we see these men have in their pride, in their arrogance, rejected the truth by using their human feelings and emotions, by using their wisdom and their human reasoning, using their humanistic ideology and philosophy, right? Science and theory and philosophy and all the things that we can come up with. In fact, we live in a world where fiction is even driving men's thoughts, right? Everybody's waiting for a zombie apocalypse because they watch the fictional movie about it. So when the coronavirus breaks out, we get ready for a zombie apocalypse. I want to say, people, it's not zombies. It's a cold. It's a flu. It's going to pass like every other thing of its nature has passed. It will pass. Here's the thing. We're all looking for this excuse to live out our human reasoning, our human feelings, our humanistic viewpoints to see science prove itself. You know what's funny about science proving itself? We'll talk more about this in a minute. The more scientists try to disprove God, the more God disproves science. It's almost comical. It's almost comical to watch it play out. And the closer we get to the appearing of the Lord, I guarantee you we're going to see more and more things as to where God is going to cancel science with his authority and his power. And we know this ultimately. When Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives, there will be no more faith in science. It will be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords taking his throne and ruling and reigning on this earth. And what a glorious day that will be. But so as we look at this, men reject the truth in so many ways. They're humanistic, sinful ideology, again, science, philosophy. And then what it does, they use reasoning and they use philosophy and they use science and they use intellect. And before you know it, it results in the erasing of God's revealed truth. And it moves them to a point of embracing relative truth. And embracing relative truth, meaning this, truth is just truth to the one who thinks it's true. It's just relative to me, or it's relative to you, or it's relative to where you are in your life. It's relative to where I am in my life. It's relative to my viewpoints and my ideology. How many of you know truth is not relative? Truth is absolute. So we can't deal with truth in relative nature. We deal with truth in absolute. God and his word, absolute truth. That's why I told you when we started way back in the sola, sola scripture, everything that we are going to talk about is going to be based on scripture alone. We're not going to deviate from that. We're not going to leave that because it is scripture alone that is absolute truth. You know how I know this? Jesus said it. John 17, 17, sanctify them by truth. 
Your word is truth, absolute truth right here. You don't have to look any further. You got it right there. 66 books right there in your hand of absolute, inerrant, perfect truth. But yet the world still looking for relative truth because they are depraved in their sinful minds, rejecting the absolute truth of God. And God says in doing this, you become foolish. Why? Why do they become foolish? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than any man, isn't it? And so they become foolish in their reasoning. They, de- they deny God's absolute truth. And in essence, in doing that, what you do is you lead yourself into total rejection and total unbelief. Man doesn't embrace the obvious truths that he sees around him with his own eyes that he can touch, that he can see, that he can smell, that he can even taste, if he doesn't embrace the obvious truths, let me, let me help you, he will never embrace the truths that will save him by faith and not sight. He will never embrace those things. So what happens is in their sinfulness, man just continues to kick against God and kick against his revelation. And then eventually... He thinks he's so smart that he doesn't need God or anything of God. And in that moment, he becomes a total fool, doesn't he? How many of you would say, I was well on my way to that when Christ saved me? I'll say it. I was well on my way to that when Christ graciously saved me. Because I know this. It doesn't matter if you were saved when you were seven or if you were saved when you were 70. You were well on your way to this no matter what because that is the progression of sinful man without God in their life. I guarantee you. The scriptures are saying to us tonight. And so it moves us to where we are today. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that um, because it is so prevalent, the things that we are talking about. I told you in the beginning, we're seeing it now probably like we've never seen it before. I'll say this definitely like I've never seen it before in my lifetime. And I want to talk to you a little bit about where we are because we are in a postmodern age in our culture. And a lot of people hear the term postmodernism, and they say, man, what is that? I'll tell you, before I tell you what it is, I'll tell you this, that it is the sad evidence of man's rejection of God continually over and over and over again. And we're seeing that in our culture. And so postmodernism, and let me, before you tune me out, I'm going to make this quick. I'm not going to bore you with a lot of details, but I want you to have a basic understanding of where we are so you can see that it's consistent with what Scripture says man is going to do in their progression in their sin. And so postmodernism, we know this. If we just made a basic timeline from Augustine um, to the Reformation, um, the concept of truth was defined like this. What does God's Word say? What is truth and absolute truth according to what the Bible says? The concept of truth was defined by the Word of God. It was discussed through the scriptures, right? If we wanted to know absolute truth, we went to the word of God in this era. And it was discussed by theologians because theologians were the people who dedicated them li- their lives themselves. They were called by God to make sure that these truths, these absolute truths were preserved, right? So from Augustine all the way to the Protestant Reformation, again, I know history, some of you tune it off, don't. Then we see this, we see another move and another trend in history called the Renaissance. And the, the Renaissance era was the 14th to 17th centuries. 
Now, this is where thinkers began to elevate human reasoning above all other reasoning. It was, again, that rebirth of what we see when we were talking in First John just here on Sunday mornings about Gnosticism. It was that rebirth of a, a Gnosticistic-type thinking where we're trying to obtain this higher knowledge, this, this enlightenment in knowledge. And then that moved us into uh, the period of enlightenment, which was the 18th century uh, to the early 19th century. And in the Enlightenment period, it brought on the idea of science over religion. This is where uh, science became more important than theology, and science became more important than the absolute truth of the Word of God. Therefore, religious truth began to be uh, put on the back burner in, in a lot of, of ways, just totally uh, discarded and left alone uh, for scientific reasons uh, as the only absolute truth. So now science has become, uh, during this Enlightenment period, absolute truth. So if science says it, it's real. It doesn't have to say it in God's Word, and so we have escalated to that. And then we moved into modernism, and this is the late 19th century to the early 20th century, uh, where we see um, a rise in secular, secular secularism. Uh, we see a rise in industrialism, right? Some of you have lived the end of that and, and maybe and seen that and read about it in school. Maybe when they started reading about it, you turned the teacher off. You shouldn't have done that. You'd be further ahead tonight. But we see this in that there was a moral decline and it gave birth to relative truth as defined by the individual, not by the Bible and what God's Word says. Then we move from modernism, and I told you this is brief. There's a lot more that goes into this, but I'm giving you the brief so that you don't get mad at me, and I'm trying to stay under an hour, and i got five minutes. But then we move to postmodernism, and that's where we live now. And in postmodernism, this is the late 20th century to our present time, uh, we're at a point in postmodernism, and what postmodernism does, it denies any and all absolute truth. So we went from... God's Word being absolute truth, then we escalated to science now being absolute truth, to now we're in postmodernism where there is no absolute truth. So in postmodernism, there is no objective or absolute truth at all, and, and especially when it comes to God and religion and the Bible. There's absolutely no uh, grounds for any of that in postmodernism. Uh, the subjective opinion uh, is now the only truth. Uh, so whatever your opinion is, uh, that's truth. And so if you decide that you were born a girl and you think your opinion is that you want to be a guy in a postmodern world, you can go get a surgery and you can make that happen. And then, you know what? If you, as a male in our society, were raised by your mommy and your daddy was nowhere to be found and no one taught you how to be a man and you took on the feminine characteristics of your mommy, the thing is, you know what? You have some homosexual tendencies. And so what you begin to say is, because this is my opinion that I like men, now I can do that and it makes it right because I am my own truth. You see where we have come so far. So in our postmodern culture, um, absolute truth is just my opinion. And it's not really absolute because you can have your opinion too, right? And we have to respect all opinions. So if Tucker decides that he wants to be a woman, I can't say, Tucker, that's wrong according to the Word of God because Tucker says, who do you think you are? I am truth unto myself. Everybody see how postmodernism works? And so I wanted to give you a little bit of this because in our postmodern era, 
and culture that we live in, uh, we are seeing this downgrade like never before, right? Everybody gets to be what they want to be, right? And that could change from day to day, right? The LGBTQs and all the abbreviations that we see, what are those? Those are things that defy the truth and the absolute truth of the Word of God. But people are fighting and saying that it's right. Why? Because a small portion of humanity holds that opinion. Because a small portion of humanity holds that opinion, well, then we have to respect them, right? And a small portion of humanity says that all cops are bad. Postmodernism says, well, that must be truth, right? And culture now says... All white people are racist. Well, someone has that opinion. It must be what? True. And so before you know it, truth changes like the weather. You don't believe me? Watch the news. Right? The coronavirus is going to kill everybody. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Oops, sorry, we made another mistake, made another miscalculation. We don't really even know. Why? Because these people are just going on their human opinions. They're not looking at absolute truth. Absolute truth says this, it doesn't matter. Our days, as we read in the Psalms earlier, our days have already been determined, right? We have nothing to fear, those of us who understand and believe in God's Word as absolute truth. So we see that this postmodernism has led us to a really um, extensive secular humanistic ideology, philosophy, and viewpoint. So I would say this to you, public enemy number one to Christianity in our society is postmodernism. It is public enemy number one. Before you know it, those of us who preach that anything is right and or wrong because of Scripture will be arrested for hate crimes because there will be someone of a differing opinion. And they are going to get on to us because we as Christians deal in absolute truth. They deal in their own opinions and truth in the moment. And so understand, the good news is, this is not our home. We don't live in a postmodern home. We live in a sovereign home ruled by the King of kings and Lord of lords, and one day he's going to take us out of here and take us to there, and I can't wait for that day. So man is without excuse, and God is justified in his wrath because man has rejected truth due to his prideful arrogance. The more man thinks he knows, the more prideful and arrogant he gets in his sin nature. And the last point, and I'll make it fast. God's wrath is justified because man has replaced God. This is inevitably where it ends up. They replace God. Exodus tells us this, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Right, Write that down. Very important. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7 says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So man not only rebels against God, rejects truth in his prideful arrogance, he completely attempts in his sinful state, if left unchecked and unredeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, he then moves to a place of replacing God. 
right? And so we see this. We, we, we look at postmodernism and we see, man, that's where we are. We are moving. Listen to me, church. We are moving to full-blown idolatry. That's the next step in this journey. Full-blown idolatry where God is whoever or whatever we want him or her to be. If we're not already there, it won't be long. Why? Because Scripture is true. It's absolute. And it says this is the cycle of the downgrade of sinful man. Thank you. Isn't the gospel wonderful when we see what we've been rescued from? Thank you, Lord, that we've been rescued from this. And we didn't get to the point where we were replacing you with things. Verse 23, he says, And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Of course, he's speaking of idols. He's speaking in terms that they would understand. They exchange true worship of God for idolatry. John Calvin stated this in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The sinful human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We are going to build idols for ourselves if we are unredeemed through Christ. Because in our sin nature, that is where it is inevitably going to lead all of us into idolatry. You don't believe me? Go look historically. You don't believe me? Start at Genesis and just read and see how many times sinfulness led men into idolatry. It is a a very startling and scary stop on the road of depravity. And it's scary because why? In that, they are breaking the commands of God to not have any gods before him, to not make any graven images to worship and to bow down to and to not use his name in vain. We'll talk about that. Using his name in vain is in the the category with all these other things that have to do with idolatry. Why is that? I'll show you why. Idols are present today. Don't forget that, aren't they? Idolatry is practiced whenever anything in creation, whether it's good or bad, takes supremacy over the one true God. Whether it's your hobby, your kid's hobby, sports, your recreation, your job, your family, anything that takes supremacy in your life over God has become an idol. I know what we're going to do. All of us, even those of us who are here today and we're redeemed and born again, we're going, man, I, I have these things, temptations in my life too. Yes, you do. Aren't you glad that they're only temptations to struggle that you can trust God with? When you were in your depravity, all you could do was fall to these idols. And so we see this, that man is eventually going to completely attempt to replace God. And I'll tell you this, God cannot and will not tolerate this. He just told us when we read there in Exodus, he is a jealous God. He's not going to stand for it. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God's not going to stand for it. He's done too much for you. We've seen that. Through his general revelation and through his common grace, he's done too much for the unbeliever. 
to settle for them to, to just continually downgrade into a point of idolatry where they replace the one true God with all of these things and all of these other idols. They followed after false gods. We've seen that throughout history. Can I help you? Any so-called God that is not validated by Scripture is a false God, not the true God and sovereign Lord of all. I want you to understand that. Because there are many people in so-called churches following gods that don't look like the God of Scripture. Those are false gods. Those are demon-possessed things that are leading people away from the truth. Please understand that. Please don't play around with that. And so understand these people have begun to worship in their depravity false gods. And then they've practiced false worship, right? Through their religious rituals, their traditions, through the things that don't really bring God glory at all, but bring glory to someone or something else. Unfortunately, we see this in modern Christendom, don't we? Where men would rather follow their traditions than follow the will of God and the heart of God and the Word of God. It becomes idolatry. When you're following any little g God, that means this. He's not the capital G God that we see in Scripture, Jehovah. He is some man-made created idea of who somebody thinks God might be. If you're following that little g, lowercase God, you're following an idol. And that idol is there because Satan has a plan. And he's had this plan since before he was cast out of heaven. He desired to be God. But on his best day, he can only be lowercase g. He can't be uppercase g because absolute truth says there's only one true God. He is the God who has revealed himself to us by the things around us. He is the one who revealed himself in the scripture. He is the one who revealed his only begotten son through the gospel. And he is the one who, by the faith that he has given us, rescued us through that only begotten son so that we can know him personally and we can be rescued from the sin that we've seen here today that is deserving of the wrath of God. God is justified in his wrath toward sinful man. I promise you this, had Jesus Christ not saved me, God would be justified in pouring his wrath out on my life because I, until I was redeemed, was guilty of every single one of these things. That's why it's important that we see that Paul starts us off talking about the gospel in Romans. He talks about the righteousness of God, letting people know you've been freed because of those things. You now stand righteous, but here's where you were and here's where the unredeemed still are should motivate us to praise him for the grace that he's shown us through the gospel, and it should motivate us to go out and to share the gospel with those who are still where we once were. Practicing false worship, false religion, deceived by demonic influences, because behind every idol, even if it's an American idol, behind every idol is a devil. Please understand that. He is seeking to lead sinners farther and farther and farther and farther and farther away from the truth. And in our postmodern culture that I define for you very briefly, it is becoming more and more easy for a person to be deceived because there are more idols today 
I believe this with all my heart, especially in this godless nation. There are more idols today than the world has ever seen. And so we see the progression of sinful man. And I'm thankful today that God through Jesus Christ stopped that progression in my life by rescuing me from exactly this. Because I deserved his wrath and I deserved his judgment. And he would have been just in sending me to hell. But I'm, thank you, I'm thankful that instead of his justice, he has given me in Christ his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and the salvation that only he can give. Again, that should motivate us to thank him. And that should motivate us to go out and tell the good news to those who are still in the depravity of their sin. So God is justified in his wrath. Why? Because he's revealed himself to us over and over and over again. That general revelation. Because he's removed every excuse that we could ever come up with. Because we rebelled against him. Because we, sinful man, rejected truth because of our prideful arrogance. And because we, in our sinfulness, at every turn, have replaced God with idols. So pray for those who are lost. Thank God that you're saved. Share the gospel on every opportunity that God gives you. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. God, I pray in this tonight that each of these men see the wretched filth that you have rescued us from, the depravity that controlled us. God, we know this, that you did not have to do that. Lord, you would have been right if you sent Kirk Hall to hell for all eternity because that's exactly what I deserve. But I am thankful that in eternity past, you, according to your plan, sought me out. You knew me and you chose me to be a recipient of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And I'm thankful that at the appointed time, your spirit offered me that grace and that mercy, giving me the gift of faith to believe so that I am forever changed. And I don't take that for granted because, Lord, I know this, and I pray that each man in this room tonight knows that it came at a high cost, that it came because of your sacrifice where you stood in our sinful places and bore the wrath that belonged to us so that we might go free. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for the righteousness that you have established for all of us who have trusted in you. Lord, we pray for the lost in this community, the lost in this state, the lost in this country. May we never miss an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel to a depraved sinner just like we once were, that they might hear, that they might be called, and that they might receive your salvation through grace by faith in Jesus alone. We love you. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.